don't remember ever considering anything but an English degree. I just loved to read. I loved books. I loved literature. That was that was a pretty obvious choice. I don't think I ever thought about what to do afterwards, at least early on. And I don't think anyone asked me <laughs> what I wanted to do afterwards. So I think I think there was no pressure to do it one way or another. I'm 31 now. So it really was my 20s were this time of like soaking up every bit of information, learning different fields. Um, and I think I think it's undervalued. Learning a little bit about a lot of things when you're young and when you're figuring out the world has led me to be able to start with something I know and research further and make connections between things that don't feel connected um, in learning and in interviewing for a job, creating a podcast. <laughs> This is What Are You Going to Do With That? A podcast where we explore everyday folks' decisions to study the humanities as undergraduates and their pathways to fulfilling careers. I'm Scott Muir of the National Humanities Alliance, an organization dedicated to promoting the value of the humanities on campuses and in communities. In this episode, we meet Hannah Hethman, owner of Better Lemon Creative Audio and author of the book, Your Museum Needs a Podcast. To date, Hannah has produced more than a dozen podcasts that make the humanities come alive, including Reframing History, On the Record from the National Archives, the Smithsonian Institution's Stories from Main Street, and Preservation Profiles from the National Preservation Institute. It all began with her original podcast, Museums in Strange Places. We just heard Hannah reflecting on how her humanities education enabled her to pursue her passion for literature, hone adaptable core skills, and ultimately, to leverage these skills and passions to build a career that reflects her values. For Hannah, this meant creating a successful business from scratch in a field that hardly existed when she entered college 15 years ago. In this day and age, it's virtually impossible to forecast the professional opportunities that will open and close in the decades to come. Herein lies a key advantage of a humanities background. By focusing on developing broadly applicable skills and knowledge, Humanities majors prepare themselves to seize opportunities as they emerge in real time. Let's return to Hannah's story now. So I um, was kind of born and raised in the College Park, Maryland area, um, although we did uh, live abroad in um, Saudi Arabia and Egypt before I was like 11 for a while. So it was kind of back and forth a bit. Um, but then we kind of settled back down. And then we moved to Upper Marlboro, Maryland. So Prince George's County. But I was homeschooled. Did like a once-a-week homeschool co-op. But I guess, I'm, I want to say sixth, seventh grade, I kind of, she could just give me books and I would do, I would do school. Then I would go to the library and naturally go for classics and stuff like that. And I was a very pretentious child. Um, I would have told you at sixth grade that I only read classics. But basically, I was homeschooled all the way up through age 16 when I started going to Anne Arundel Community College. Um, and I did like concurrent enrollment, which is where your um, courses count towards high school and college. And uh, it's actually, I looked it up again, it's the number one community college in the country. So I had a wonderful experience there. It was a, it was a really good school. So there were some incredible, incredible professors. Um, 
I did a romantics course with Professor Mark Matthews. We had to come prepared to like write many essays at the beginning of every class. And then it was discussion style. And I mean, I could literally quote lessons. He was just so passionate about his subjects and teaching us the connection between um, Supertramp and the romantics. You know, for example, he'd play us music um, from his, you know, time in the 70s. I took a, um, a Old Testament as literature course. And so for that was eye-opening for me, just fascinating. And the woman was just absolutely brilliant. Um, I was able to join the, um, there was a literary journal, <laughs> Amaranth. Um, and the two women who ran that were just so passionate. And so I was able to become the, the editor of that little literary journal, which was a really, really cool experience for me. And I I really treasured my time at the at Anne Arundel Community College. And once you get your your associate's degree, you can transfer to the University of Maryland if you're an adjacent uh, community college. Um, certain GPA, you get an automatic entrance. So I transferred to University of Maryland. I think undergraduate was a, a really good time for me to be exposed to a lot of different directions of learning um, and ideas. You know, I took <laughs> University of Maryland a Persian literature and translation course, a whole course on Roma culture, like the culture of Roma gypsies, um, Brazilian cinema. And these feel like, you know, when people make fun of humanities, they're like, what are you going to use that for? But I think with the humanities, it's about taking those latent skills, the things that we kind of learn through life, how to understand, how to interpret, how to, you know, ask questions. Okay, well, how could I do that even better? Um, it's so much about these skills that are part of our human education um, growing up, um, speaking, learning, talking, um, thinking, looking, um, and and amplifying them, but identifying them and then amplifying them. Yeah. And then, I mean, the more you teach yourself something, the more you know how to teach yourself something. <laughs> So you graduate. Okay, so tell me about how you sort of evaluated what was next after that. Yeah, I was really sad to graduate. <laughs> I was like, I wanted to go to school. So I came across just by this kind of Googling process of figuring, following one lead to another, uh, an interdisciplinary Viking medieval Norse studies program taught in English, um, open to international students. The program was attached to the Arnie Magnuson Institute, which is the premier um, repository of Old Norse manuscripts in the world. Um, half of it's in Iceland, half of it's in Denmark. And it actually really appealed to me, not just for the adventure, but I'd, I'd been really interested in medieval stuff, um, but I didn't want to do just literature and I didn't want to do just history. So this was something that combined history, archaeology, manuscript studies. You learn Old Norse. Um, so it was a little bit of everything and that really appealed. And I had one or two courses that gave me enough um, background and, and I got in. It was $500 a semester um, or something like that. And um, so I just went to Iceland. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I was very excited. I mean, it was just a fun time to be immersed in learning. I went to Copenhagen. I lived in Copenhagen for a semester. I got to touch a lot of really old books. And I got to travel around Iceland a lot. I met my future husband, um, a Finnish man. I read a lot, learned a lot. Um, really kind of came to my own as, as an adult. It was adventure. I mean, it was adventure, but academic adventure. 
came back to Maryland, my boyfriend, to be later future husband, um, got an internship in D.C. So uh, we stayed together at my dad's house outside D.C. And I spent the summer applying for jobs and figuring out what to do next. But so I was like, I need, I need a career and a job. And I started really thinking about what do I have and how does it all work together. And eventually I found the American Association for State and Local History in Nashville, Tennessee, needed a marketing coordinator. And I, <laughs> I managed to, I said, basically, you know, Icelandic history is local history. And so they gave me a chance and they thought the Old Norse Masters was interesting and caught their eye. But I think the fact that I had done that type of Masters, that I had done that type of study, that type of inquiry, that kind of niche scholarly academic research uh, in this interdisciplinary humanities field, said something about who I was to people, you know, hiring. So I went to Nashville, had an interview. I'd never been there before. Um, and they're like, do you, you know, can you start in a week? So I went home, put my stuff in the car, drove back to Nashville, went to their annual meeting. It was the first day of work, a thousand people, talked to all these people who did public history in like mostly in museums and historic sites. It looks like the community archiving project, the community oral history project tends to be more about making information accessible. And it's history like for people. It's, you know, to make the world a better place, um, to help us understand our world better. And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is my people. This is awesome. Um, and it was like, it was an amazing weekend, their first conference, um, meeting all these people and seeing a career path, an application, a field um, that I could plug into. So it's been about seven years now that I've been very connected with the type of people that are in ASLA. It was a really cool experience. And um, my boss, um, everyone I worked for was great. Over two years, I picked up so much knowledge about what the field does. Because so much of my work there was about understanding trying to figure out what exactly the members needed and what they were talking about and what they were interested in and what they wanted, what resources they did and didn't have. This comes up in my where I jumped to podcasting later, but what's missing in terms of resources and and tools for them to do their job right um, and effectively and figure out how ASLH could answer those needs and how they could communicate to them digitally. Um, so things like that. Um, it was an incredible learning experience, and it was also really fun. I really, really liked working at ASLH. Um, so I really liked working for ASLH, um, but, and I really appreciate the city of Nashville, and I appreciate Tennessee. Um, I really didn't see myself there long-term, and didn't help that the time my boyfriend <laughs> was uh, doing his his degree in London. I felt like I wanted to go back to Iceland, and so I applied to this um, Fulbright program that was um, in coordination with the Arnie Magnuson Language Institute, so very related to the organization that had done my master's in, um, and I was kind of weirdly qualified for it. It was a program to to study Icelandic as a second language at the undergraduate level at the university for a year. So I'd said like in my application, I will do this course and then I will also investigate Icelandic museum culture um, and I'll do write articles or a blog or something like that. So I started thinking about it and I, the folks at the New England Museum Association and they wrote a technical leaflet for ASLH on how to do a history podcast 
And they're like, here's the equipment that we use. So I bought that for $200 and off I went to Iceland. And I just started interviewing people at museums, starting with the guy who led me on a tour of the first museum. <laughs> I went to the open air museum. I was the one person on the tour. The guy was great. And I was like, can I interview you for my podcast? And um, off I went and I just ended up interviewing 25 museums over the course of nine months. Um, spent all my savings getting to them uh, <laughs> that I'd been able to save up while in Nashville. Um, Iceland has like 150 museums at that time. Uh, a lot. A lot of little weird museums, a lot of really cool, interesting museums, a lot of uh, really passionate people um, with really interesting stories to tell, local history stories to tell. Each museum was a story about the local place um, as well. I just figured out how to make a podcast, and I sat down and had a lot of time to practice and figure it out. So yeah, I wanted to make something and, and put it out on my own terms. As soon as I started, I just was like, oh, this is a perfect storytelling medium for me. It just really clicked. You know, it would take these long interviews and then I'd, I'd really tighten them up and do clips. And then I wrote a lot of narration in between. So it really was nonfiction storytelling. The content as well, telling stories about museums, I found them fascinating. And it, um, I think I just wanted to keep going. I thought I'd bring it back and do something in the museum field. So I didn't want to, like, leave museums and histories. I, so I wanted to turn this into something like that. By this point, I had more of a strategic brain career-wise than just do whatever is interesting. So through my time at ASLH, I had been working pretty hard to build a network. Um, it was a golden age for Twitter, for the, the humanities professional. And then, you know, working with ASLH, I met a lot of people. A lot of people got to know me. Um... And by the time I got to Iceland, I think I had a pretty decent network. I started making my podcast and I started promoting it to those people. They were my audience um, and using Twitter mostly and email. And some of those people started writing back, Hannah, this is really good. We were thinking of making a podcast. Do you have any advice? <laughs> so I started writing to people and talking to people and it was very helpful. And I was able to condense and articulate what I had been uh, learning and by the end, um, I really felt like I had something, that I had a skill. And, you know, I'd done a few articles, a few webinars. I realized that people were kind of hungry for this information, and, and, it, and there was no 101 information available. So I could provide 101 information, and I went to a podcast conference, and there was someone doing a session about how to self-publish your own book. And I was like, yeah. I'm going to do that. <laughs> so I went to Poland and I spent a month writing a 100-page book. I just brain dumped everything that I knew about podcasting and organized it in a way that it was only what was applicable to people making a podcast for museums or history stuff and really simple, really budget-friendly because all I'd done was budget-friendly. I got someone to design a cover for me. I got it formatted. I published on Amazon and I started promoting it, and I thought maybe I'll, like, get some consulting or, like, teach a workshop. I didn't really have an idea of exactly where it'd go. I didn't imagine people would pay me to make a podcast. I was just offering what I had learned and translating it for people into their terms, and that was really helpful to them. Traveled home. I went to a lot of conferences, 2018 through 2019. So about a 14-month period, I went to about 12 conferences. To museum conferences in the U.S., in Europe, I'm sending copies to conferences via Amazon's uh, author copies where you can pay $2 to like send a book to someone. So sending boxes of books to conferences and things like that. It was cheap and affordable, trying to get people to buy it, you know, doing webinars and blogs and trying to just connect in that way. And um, 
this company that I had met, the National Archives of the UK, approached them about doing a podcast. They were interested in trying podcasting, and their budget was little. And they connected me, and I said, I mean, it was something like 5,000 pounds. You know, it was, for me, it was a huge amount of money. Um, And I said, yeah, I can do three episodes for you as proof of concept. And... Uh, It just so happens that I'm moving to London in a few months, and my husband had gotten a job working in Parliament, so off we went to London just before Christmas 2019, and in January, I started making a podcast for the National Archives of the UK. It was my first client. Yeah, I really stretched, but I learned a lot, and I I got more seasons with them. I still work for them. I went back home that same summer, and I'd done a second season of my podcast Museums and Strange Places about Maryland museums. And I met a lot of people in Maryland. And one of them was like, hey, Hannah, do you want to make a podcast for the Museum on Main Street program for the Smithsonian? And I said, yes. <laughs> I had two podcasts, Smithsonian and National Archives under my belt. That was enough to promote and to keep going. And by the time the pandemic hit um, in early 2020, I had pretty well established myself um, and was starting to make money <laughs> like a profit. And then everyone who had a podcast on the back burner got to bring their to the front burner. And um, it business boomed through the pandemic. I was very, very, very busy. And right now I'm working with the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience, which is an incredible organization that works with, um, you know, everything from the 9-11 Museum to like sites of enslavement and um, all over the world. They work with a lot of local organizations doing like small scale truth and reconciliation committees. And we're doing this podcast where I'm helping to facilitate conversations between people who are helping um, advocate against female genital mutilation and people who are um, supporting former militants in Colombia to, like, come back into society and connect with other people. Um, So really important work. I get to know people um, and what they're trying to do, what stories they want to tell. I ask a lot of questions. I listen. And then I kind of consolidate that into an idea. And I'm in my third full profitable year um, where it's not just trying to make a business, but it's an actual business. And um, yeah, it's going pretty well. I like running a business as much as I like making podcasts, possibly even more. I have to say, I really like bidding, talking to clients and pitching. Um, It's, yeah, that does it for me. with a humanities degree, you can become a lawyer, you can become a podcast producer, you could become a journalist, you could become a a curator. You don't have to know where that's going to take you in your 30s, um, but you do have to have ideas of what what the options are. And when you know what your options are, you'll be able to better take advantage of opportunities that are financially sustainable as you find them. Um, And also don't be afraid to to other stuff until you make it to where you want to go. It's okay to take the the money job on, along the way, you know, that doesn't quite do what you want to do, but um, gives you the opportunity to learn a skill that will get you back into the field that you did want to do. I wanted to keep working in museums, and I saw a niche, and I just kind of went for it, and I, I, you know, had an idea of the career I wanted. Yeah, it's about translating everything that I've done <laughs> into uh, a new profession of sorts. It's about coming in and collaborating with these organizations and caring about what they're doing as much as what they are. That ha- that's an important part of it. And understanding what they're doing and why they're doing it 
I believe in the missions of the organizations that I work for. If I did not, I would not work for them. And these arts and culture organizations that I work for, they do amazing stuff. Now, what they're doing is really, really cool and really important. And they don't always have all the tools they need to communicate that to people or to get that out there. And so if I can come in and be a little cog in their outreach machine, in their programming machine, and help them do what they do a little louder, a little better, a little more online, whatever it is, um, I feel like I'm contributing in a small way. I mean, and so to be facilitating that in a small way, and the same as it would be if I was developing developing a website for them, um, is is meaningful. But if I can come up alongside someone who is doing really good things or is making bigger change or who is just across like their institution, you know, that's big enough to make, to to be a, a force for good or, or positivity or sharing culture, whatever, um, over the long run, you know, over its hundred years of existence, whatever it is, if I can come alongside and help at any point um, to make sure that keeps going or reaches one more person or whatever that is, uh, to me, that's, that's meaningful and that's plenty and that's enough um, and satisfying. Mm-hmm.